In today's episode of Taking Care, we talk about children and there's reference to violence that kids may experience. We advise listening with caution if these themes may be triggering to you and it may not be appropriate for younger listeners. Before we begin, we acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters, and communities. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present, and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the national boards. I'm Susan Bigger. Today, we're talking about children and their health. This is an age group we haven't heard much about during the pandemic, but they're still there. And with us to talk all things children, we have someone who has devoted his life to their health, Professor Kim Oates. Kim is a pediatrician who trained in Sydney, London, and Boston, but most of his professional life has been connected to the Children's Hospital at Westmead, including nearly a decade as the hospital's CEO and a long association with the University of Sydney. Kim, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So can you tell us a bit about how you ended up with a focus on children's health? It was by accident, really. Because we grew up in a family where no one had ever been to university and nobody knew anything about medicine, I didn't know any, any options. So my only option, I thought, was to be a general practitioner, which I still think is a fantastic thing to be. Um, so in preparation for that, I thought I'd do a year at the Children's Hospital, the, the Camperdown Children's Hospital, uh, and I was lucky to get the professorial term. And the professor said to me towards the end of the year, um, Kim, what are your future plans? And I told him my plans, which I thought were pretty good. I said, oh, I'm going to uh, get a job in a ship's doctor next year, go to London, turn up and find a job there. And he said, that's a stupid plan. He said, um, you, you stay on next year, another year, be my registrar for the year, and I'll get you a job at a London teaching hospital. So um, that's a, it just sort of happened. He did. I got a job at a London teaching hospital. And before I knew what had happened, I was on the way to training to be a pediatrician. It sounds like... Um uh, an accidental happening, which probably was very fortuitous. Well, most, I mean, I think few, few people plan their futures. I think most people just grab, grab opportunities when they come up. That's certainly been the story of my life. That's absolutely right. Kim, can you talk to us a bit about what patient safety um, means to you in the context of children and children's health? So I came to patient safety fairly late. And when I grew up in medicine, my senior said to me, um, admit nothing and put nothing in writing. That was the sort of prevailing view. Nobody talked about patient safety. And then I came to realize that, that patient safety is pretty important. And uh, we, we sent one of our staff across to, uh, to Utah, to, which was the center for patient safety where Brent James was working. And uh, he was so excited. He, and he's a guy that doesn't get excited. And he rang me from the airport on the way home and said, this is amazing. This is, uh, this is just something we have to do. And I thought to myself, well, if, if, this, if this guy who takes a lot to get excited, if he's excited about it, it must be pretty good. So that sort of stimulated my interest in it. And we set up a patient safety unit and, and got involved. And the whole health system was moving in that area around that time. Can you tell me what it means when you say that you started to, to look more seriously at patient safety? There are skills that provide high quality care that are separate from the technical skills. Um, clear communication skills, for example. The person might be a brilliant, a brilliant clinician or a brilliant surgeon, but if they don't communicate clearly with the family, um, the family misunderstands instructions, 
uh, things might go wrong. So there are a lot of non-technical skills that are part of patient safety. Communication is one of them. Putting the patient first every time is really important and, uh, and we still have to get that across to, to many people in medicine. And I would guess that for patient safety in pediatrics, a big piece of that then is the role of um, the family and how you incorporate them and advocating um, for their child. Is that right? Yeah, that's crucial. That, and that's one of the things that attracted me to, to pediatrics. I mean, I was, I was either going to be a GP or a psychiatrist. That was my dream. And partly psychiatry because I was interested in, uh, in families and the social aspects of pediatrics and, and all health. And, of course, in pediatrics, you... You, can, you have family involvement as well as child involvement. And certainly when I used to employ and interview all the, um, all the resident staff for the hospital, uh, I'd, I'd favour the people who, who were interested in children who had an illness rather than who were interested in illnesses but just happened to be in children. And there's, there's a big difference focusing on the, um, on the whole child and the whole family. So, Kim, you, uh, another part of your career has been that you've spent many years advocating for at-risk children as a doctor. You know, I wonder if you can talk about how child protection and health overlap. They, they overlap to a great deal. And this is another area. I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly new. In 1962, an American pediatrician, Henry Kemp, looked at a whole lot of children that had come to the emergency department in Denver with unexplained injuries. And he thought, there's something funny going on here. And I think these unexplained injuries have an explanation that everybody's denied until now. And I think the explanation is that parents are actually injuring their children. Now, this was a taboo area. Nobody talked about it. In fact, Kemp had, Kemp had offered this... Uh, a symposium on the subject to the Academy of Pediatrics the year before, and they hadn't even uh, put it on their program. So he published it. He called it The Battered Child Syndrome in 1962. And that was really the beginning of the awareness of that parents could actually uh, injure their children. And I think the denial that we all had was because it's, it's a thing that's pretty hard to believe, and we don't want to believe it. And we're taught as clinicians to take a history from parents and to believe what they tell us. That's the way we reach a diagnosis. To take a history from a parent who said, oh, the child fell out of bed, uh, but then to look at the child and find there's a fractured skull and two broken ribs and a ruptured liver, um, which couldn't possibly have happened in that way, that's, that's a, it's a big leap and it's very difficult. So we used to accept, I think, the most unlikely stories until we started teaching people What's the answer to the question? Do the pattern of the injuries fit the story? And in fact, they often don't. Things of that falling out of bed as an example. And so it was only the, um, the early 60s, uh, some Australian papers appeared a couple of years after Kemp's paper, uh, but it really only took off in Australia and around the world, really, from the early 1970s onwards. So that was a relatively new area. In fact, sexual abuse of children uh, was denied for much longer. And there'd been a couple of reports of that, but, um, but it was really only 1977. Kemp again wrote a paper, The Hidden Problem of Child Sexual Abuse, because it was hidden and nobody wanted to talk about it. And it was really only the, like the late 70s that this started being talked about. So these problems have always been there. It's just that uh, nobody recognised it. When we lobbied the government in, uh, in the mid-70s to introduce reporting legislation in New South Wales, they said it's not a problem. And they said, look at the Department of Community Services figures. They've had two abused children in the last year. Anyhow, he convinced them to 
get reporting legislation and they got uh, just over 100 cases the next year, several hundred cases the next year and now of course because the problem is well known that there are thousands of cases every year. So it, it's, it's fascinating what just medical and community denial can do to keep a problem that's always been there hidden. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and would you say that are children safer today than they were when you first started working? Yes, I think they are safer. Uh, we're much more aware of the problem. There's, there's more emphasis on um, the importance of the early years. There's more emphasis on early intervention. There's more emphasis on supporting families who are having difficulty. Uh, and there's more emphasis for older children even on getting support. Child helplines, children ring uh, to get help. Uh, there's organisations like Lifeline and other places where people can get support. So people now know it's a problem and, and can seek help. They don't always, but there's a number of children that are really protected because people realise they're having difficulty being a parent and, and get help. Most parents who physically injure their children don't want to harm them. It's just they can't cope with some of the stresses and tensions. Their upbringing, their own upbringing hasn't been all that good. It's just hard for those people to be parents. And I admire the ones that do well. In the days when I was seeing a lot of child abuse and the shaken baby syndrome was um, just being described, we had a terribly sad case of a young child, just a few months old, who'd been violently shaken and was unconscious in intensive care. And uh, the police had charged the mother. And I interviewed the mother and the, the, the partner, the male partner, in a side room off the intensive care ward. The more I thought, this mum is totally dominated by this man, and I think the police have charged the wrong person. So after the interview, I was even more convinced that I rang the, rang the police station and said, look, I know this sounds like a bit like Yuri Meter, so I've got the diagnosis of meningitis wrong, but I think you've charged the wrong person. And in fact, so the police looked at it further. Um, and in fact, it was the man they charged the man. And years later, maybe 15 years later, maybe a bit longer, I saw this mum again at the children's hospital. I didn't recognise her. She was sort of pretty worn and tired looking. Um, but she called, she called out to me and reminded me um, of that incident. Sounds like it's actually that the health practitioners are just one of many pieces of this puzzle that keep people safe and keep children safe. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a school. Schools play a big part as well, school teachers. Kids are pretty direct and, and open often. They will be, they'll come straight out with things. What does that mean for you as a doctor? Oh, no, it's, it, it's, it's fun. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it just makes it enjoyable. And sometimes they say very funny things. There was one boy, I was seeing him in my clinic, and I had to look at his eyes with the ophthalmoscope. So you've got to get cut it really close, you know, to the, your, your face is one inch away from the child's face. And I'm looking in his eye, and when I'm looking at he says, Doctor, and I said, yes, Peter? He said, you've got bad breath. So yeah, they're, they're very frank. <laughs> another, another patient on the ward, I had a uh, designer shower that said Calvin Klein, and the little boy said, I know your name. And I said, oh, you do? She said, yes, it's Calvin Klein. That's, that's, that's part, all part of the joy of being a paediatrician. Yeah, you're just getting a, a slice of real life, aren't you? The other, I mean, sometimes parents can be frank as well. I was doing a clinic one time and uh, a lady came in with her daughter. And 
I said, oh, tell me about your child's convulsion. And the mother said, oh, she ain't had no convulsion. And I said, but the letter from the doctor that you brought along says that, could you see Mary, who had a convulsion last week? And the mother said, ah, oh, jeez, I brought the wrong kid. <laughs> um, so she, she came back with the right kid the next week. <laughs> I actually examined the child and I found something I could fix and help with anyhow. So, so you, you, you see some, just some lovely, frank, honest and quite amusing things and it's hard not to laugh sometimes. Just to shift gears a little bit, another focus of your work has been finding and encouraging future leaders. Uh, can you tell us well, maybe how you've done that and why you believe it's so important? As a professor, my aim was to point people smarter certainly a fair bit younger and smarter than me and people with complementary skills. Uh, and I kept trying to do that throughout, um, throughout my career. We, uh, I, I'd retired young as chief executive, 62, because I didn't really want to, um, to get old in a job. Uh, and I'd seen people who, where everybody was saying, yeah, it's the time the old bloke or the old girl retired. And I wanted to retire at a time when there wasn't it as people didn't want me to retire. So, then I had some, some spare time, and as well as doing quite a bit for Sydney University, the Clinical Excellence Commission said to me, oh, can you um, get together a, a curriculum on patient safety and teach it in medical schools? So I did that and taught it for quite a lot of years in, in medical schools. But I was so impressed with the young, uh, the young medical students and their potential, I mean, their, their talent, their enthusiasm, and you know, the vast majority are really good altruistic fabulous people. So it's very rewarding hanging out with future leaders and, and young people. And then I got involved, probably for the last 10 years, I've taught in the USA on an academy for emerging leaders in patient safety. And there, it's quite a rigorous selection process, but about 20 to 30 young leaders from nursing or medicine uh, and, and medical students as well, uh, come to an academy, an intense workshop for four or five days, uh, and and talk to each other about their problems and learn from uh, learn from other leaders. So I set one of those up in Australia. We ran it for four years. And uh, Susan, it was a great privilege having uh, having you as as one of the faculty. And we had twenty five scholars, ten faculty, no hierarchy. And uh, it was a time when these young people we could we could watch them develop. And some of them, in fact, changed their careers as a result of <coughs> of that. Got into patient safety. Um, and we've done some follow-up studies that, in fact, shows that it does make a difference. Uh, so it's been very, been great fun working with young people and, and influencing their careers. Well, I agree. And I think they are, as you described, very inspirational, many of these young upcoming um, future leaders in, in healthcare, um, doctors, nurses, and other people who really are committed. And, 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 and of course, we're, we're probably seeing that right now. Um, right in the limelight, I suppose, in the middle of a pandemic. So, so thinking about 2020, actually, this year, how do you see the COVID-19 pandemic affecting children? That's not something that we hear much about. No, and I think that's a pity. Uh, the good news is that it doesn't affect as many children, and when they're affected, they don't do as badly. Uh, but there are lots of things downstream that affect children. I mean, the extra burden on the health system and parental anxiety about exposing their children to medical facilities where they might get infected uh, means that some kids 
uh, miss out on preventive care. Some children don't get timely management of illnesses and injury. Some children are experiencing much more stress at home. We know that the incidence of child abuse has gone up and certainly children witnessing domestic violence uh, has gone up. So there are those downstream problems. We also know that school closures have been really useful uh, and it's been good to have them open again. <laughs> but when they closed down initially, that, that learning gap in children from wealthier families is, um, is not nearly as big. Uh, because they've got up-to-date technology, they can get coaching online, that sort of thing. But but children from lower socioeconomic groups do fall further behind. So it's a big problem. It's a big problem in developing nations. Uh, but even in Australia, uh, COVID has got some downstream effects for children. So I think it's you know it's, it's superficial to say kids are okay. Uh, we're lucky that they, they don't get badly affected, but there are still problems. Yeah. Well, they are members of our society at the very least, and everybody in the society is impacted by this pandemic. Have you seen any innovations or things being done differently in pediatrics during the pandemic? Yes, I, some good things have happened. Uh, I mean, I've been so impressed with, um, I'm, in, I'm still involved with the two children's, the two children's hospitals in the city, which are now a function as a network. So impressed with, um, with their responsiveness and flexibility uh, I mean, I think that's a sign of a very good organisation that's, uh, that's rapidly responsive and flexible. Their skills in, in personal protection and protecting them and their patients is, is very impressive indeed. And there have been some innovations in how things are done. Meetings are run more efficiently. And there's a move afoot at the moment to create a virtual children's hospital across Australia where a lot of care will be able to be given online. And I think all those things are going to be good. Work's, work is going to be a bit different and a bit better when this is all over because of what we've learned about new methods of delivering care and new methods of communication. Well, that's right. And people are seeing changes take place very quickly, very, very rapidly. Healthcare is not always um, that quick to make big changes. So Kim, have you worked much with Indigenous communities? And if so, can you tell us um, a bit about that, what you've learned from that work maybe? Well, I haven't done, done a great deal of work, but certainly some. For, for 10 years, I would fly up to, uh, to Burke once a month and take a, a medical student and a registrar, and I'd be Burke's paediatrician. Uh, so it was one day a month Burke had a paediatrician. And that was a great experience. Burke has almost a 50% Aboriginal Indigenous population. So I saw a lot of Indigenous patients. And I guess from... It, it was the same. It was the same as I, we didn't. Nobody, I think, in Burke that I was aware of distinguished. Uh, we just treated them all as uh, people who uh, had health illnesses and needed help. When we, when the National Sorry Day happened, uh, we had an event at uh, at the Children's Hospital at Westmead, and uh, I wrote an apology endorsed by the board, an apology from the hospital, and uh, that was uh, put up in the foyer of the hospital, and. Uh, that hospital did need to apologise because it was founded in 1903 at Camperdown and even as late as 1955, children who'd been removed from their families, stolen generation children, were being sent to the children's hospital uh, for some sort of illness but then picked up and taken away by a white family who was going to adopt them. So we were basically, we didn't know it, but in fact, looking back, we were staging post. In, and implicit in the solid generation. Yeah, very important. 
So Kim, you've obviously had a very long career in pediatrics, so I'm sure that you've seen some pretty significant change over that time. Have there been particular innovations in pediatrics that you think are important to talk about? Yes, thank you. Well, I think that the important, there have been many. Uh, I mean, day surgery really started in pediatrics, uh, uh, and it's, it started because we thought children shouldn't be overnight in hospital if they didn't need to be. Um, the Departments of Health produced day, introduced day surgery a few years later because they thought it was a way of uh, reducing hospital expenses, but we actually started it well before that because we cared about children and having, we wanted them home for as long as possible. And the length of stay uh, of children in hospital is reduced enormously, partly based on the passion to knowing that children get better quickly at home and they should get home as soon as they can. Children used to stay in hospital for weeks at a time. So it's been a really good innovation. Uh, way back when I was first appointed in the mid-1970s as a staff specialist at, at the Children's at Camperdown, there were still notices on the, outside the wards saying that visiting was restricted to two hours at the weekend. And so we got rid of those. But you know, just, just open visiting has, has been an innovation. So many things that are so obvious now uh, had to be changed. And people talk about the high cost of technology in health, but in fact, technology's been terrific in reducing the length of stay, getting things done quickly, rather than having to stay in hospital for days while a test is organized. Uh, so technology might be expensive, but it's certainly reduced costs in having children in the hospital less time. Uh, the overuse of technology is a problem, but wise use of technology, I think has been, uh, been excellent. And, and of course, children's hospitals are just such fun places now. Uh, they used to be terribly drab. So when I was the professor's registrar way back, I thought one of the wards I thought was dreadful, so dread, sad and drab. And I went to a travel agency and got a whole lot of pretty travel posters of lovely scenes. And Saturday morning I went down and, and, and take them all to the walls around the hospital. And on Monday, they had all been removed by the matron because the view was that things on the wall collect germs and children shouldn't be exposed to germs. Of course, that's rubbish, but it just shows how much things have changed since then. And, and as someone who's spent a long time myself with kids in the hospital, I know that the kind of changes you're talking about are changes that actually make a big difference to patients and their families and really do bring about more um, patient family-centered care. And it must make families trust, trust much more if they know that people really care. And see their child as, as you referred to earlier, as a whole person and providing whole person care and a whole person has um, people attached to it besides themselves, has families and people around them of great importance. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Kids are our future. And in the middle of a pandemic that's impacting them less than other groups. It's been a really timely reminder for me about the importance of children's health and well-being. So Kim, thank you for being with us today. We really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me. And thanks for listening to this episode. If you have any feedback or questions, please email communications at opera.gov.au. To hear more episodes of our podcast, please subscribe to Taking Care wherever you get your podcasts or just search for Taking Care on the Opera website.